0: Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places, and the human spirit that drives us all, to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. I'm really excited about our guest today. Jeff DeRose hails from Oakland, California, where early in life he developed a love for sports broadcasting. Throughout his 25-year distinguished military career, Jeff honed his skills in the field of logistics, ensuring the smooth and efficient movement of personnel, equipment, and supplies to operate in highly disruptive environments and very complex operations. Now, retired from active duty, Jeff continues his passion for logistics and leadership as the Director of Program Operations for Raymond West. Jeff is married to his wife, Bernadette, for over 30 years, and they have three children who are triplets. They all reside in Oceanside, California. In this episode, we're going to dive deep into Jeff's fascinating journey, exploring the pivotal moments in his military career that shaped his expertise in logistics and leadership. We'll also uncover valuable insights and lessons he's learned along the way and offer practical advice for all leaders. So Jeff, welcome to Servicing Leaders, excited to have you here. Let's start off by a little bit of background of where you're from and how you got all the way up to the point of where you decided, hey, I'm gonna go in the Marine Corps. So let's start with that, where are you from?
1: So I tell people I grew up in Oakland, up in the Bay Area. That's where I went to junior high and high school. When I was younger, my dad was in the Navy, so I bounced around a little bit. Born in Chicago, so I still claim Chicago is my birthplace, but really my formative years in Oakland.
0: And then in, in Oakland, you you graduate from high school, and then, and then what's the next step for you there?
1: Yeah, from high school, go on to Gonzaga University up in Spokane, and uh, did my bachelor's there. Worked in sports casting for a little bit. While I was at Gonzaga and a little bit of post-Gonzaga, then ended up going to Syracuse for a, a, a graduate degree in uh television, radio, and film. So yeah, that was kind of my educational formative years coming out of Oakland High School and then in my college years. Where did the interest come from for broadcasting? I I was always a big sports fan, but I wasn't a very good athlete. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I think I got cut from every team except cross country and track. So I did those two things, but, and I also had this love of media, particularly radio. My parents were big radio listeners, certainly, you know, back then didn't have the array of media options as, as we do today. So radio was big. So I, I always listened to the radio, listened to a lot of sports on the radio, and I don't know how I got into that, but I did. And I started playing around with the technology in high school and got into calling play by play for all kinds of games and then that just carried over and then when I went to Gonzaga they had such a great opportunity for me to do that and get a broadcasting and journalism degree. Oh wow. And so that was sort of the natural follow-on experience coming out of high school and and that led me to get the opportunities, you know, working in minor league baseball, doing baseball play by play, basketball play by play. Really loved it. It was a blast and what did you love most about it? I remember just being able to tell stories of what was going on on the air. And because my mom was always listening to the radio in the car, at home, in the kitchen, I would always envision, okay, there's somebody out here that's listening to the radio, just like my mom would listen to the radio. And making that connection knowing you know again having some kind of a purpose to hey somebody's interested in this somebody's getting their entertainment out of this and trying to make that connection and just and then the connection with sports and meeting people and following the games when when i you know those are my younger days so that was just it was a blast i had a great time doing it oh that's
0: awesome so you come back from syracuse come back to oakland and then what's the next step for you
1: so I, I went, you know, because my dad was a Navy, I, I was around Navy and military people. So I always had this affinity for the Marine Corps and I and I had a love of history and subjects of that nature. So I, when I went to Syracuse for graduate studies and in, in media, that's where I sort of rekindled my interest in the Marine Corps. And I started to think, hey, doing the sports stuff's been great, but it's probably not something that's going to really sustain my interest. And I always, I wanted to do something bigger than that and make a broader contribution to something a little bit bigger than just the the sports world and pursuing that. So, and I also recognize that, you know, if you want to do something like the Marine Corps, and there's a little bit of a shelf life there. So if you want that opportunity and that experience uh, to serve a a great organization and do something for the country, you know, you kind of have to jump Take that opportunity sooner rather than later. So, that just re-sparked my interest in in serving in the military.
0: Yeah, interesting. Where do you think that what do you think that love came for wanting to lead people?
1: I think I always had a an interest in leadership roles, and certainly Gonzaga had had an influence on me in a lot of ways. I mean, it was one of the most impactful experiences of my life, just being around the students, the faculty the Jesuits got a great liberal arts education. So in that education instills in you this sense of purpose, pursue something for the greater good. But through that education, that also instilled this sense in me like, hey, the the broadcasting is interesting, but I I think there's something bigger and broader that I can be a part of and and make a contribution.
0: Yeah, that's great. The other thing I would tell you is You know, you shared with me that your dad was a surface warfare officer. So, did you know what submariners called surface warfare officers? I did not. They're called targets. (laughs) So, you got away from being a target. Yes.
1: (laughs) And And the irony is, you know, later on in my, or actually early in my Marine Corps career, I got the opportunity to serve as the Marine officer instructor at the Navy ROTC unit at Cal Berkeley, so, I was back in that, you know, naval mix and serving alongside other naval officers, surface warfare officers, submariners, aviators. So, that was just a, another phenomenal experience. And again, with with the Navy. Yeah, that's awesome. So, I, you know, put my application in, was accepted to Officer Candidate School in Quantico. I, I went there in the winter. And from there, I went on to the Marine Corps' basic school, and that's sort of the the basic training, and you, you get the fundamentals of, of being a Marine Corps officer. And that's also where you pick your your military occupational specialty. And so I uh, was assigned logistics, so I became a logistics officer and went on to that, that school for that specialty. And then my first assignment was out here at Camp Pendleton with 1st Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion. And, you know, as you and I have discussed, that that was such a formative experience for me because of the leader retired general john kelly was my first battalion commander and so he he had such a a phenomenal leadership style and approach and how he cultivated the organization and then you know my fellow officers in the marines it was just such a positive experience that i think if if i had not had such a, a strong positive experience that first time i might have been like a lot of my peers and and maybe just did my initial you know service obligation and then and then moved on to something else
0: so for those of who are listening who don't know who John Kelly is, can you share with us who he is and where he rose to?
1: So, yeah, General John Kelly, uh, at the time when I served, he, he was a lieutenant colonel as the commander uh, of that battalion. And then <clears throat> certainly a phenomenal officer. And, it, you know, that was evidenced by he, he rose to the rank of of general, had a tour as a combatant commander for U.S. Southern Command, had other senior commands, was was the assistant division commander underneath General Mattis during the march up to Baghdad. And, you know, subsequent to his military career, when he retired from the Marine Corps, he went on to serve as the secretary for Department of Homeland Security.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What was so great about him? Like, what are some of the actions that he did, but some of the activity that he did that made him a great leader for you?
1: One of his signature... I guess, attributes or impacts in in the organization was a phenomenal teacher. And he made teaching and learning maybe his top priority. And you knew that because that's where he spent time and he made that a priority for everybody else. So as an example, he would have uh, what we used to call in the Marine Corps professional military education. It's really just going to school, but he would assign a a book to be read by all the officers in the battalion. So probably a book a month, and it was a very well thought out, like educational plan. And you know, he, he scripted it all out. like yeah, I want to study these types of things, and we're going to read these types of books to get at that. And so everybody, all the officers were on the same program. We're reading the same book, and then every Monday afternoon for several hours. You know, this was one. wasn't like a forty-five minute deal. This was several hours. Every week? Every week. Wow. And and he was adamant about that's the priority so nobody can miss unless you are physically like on leave and, and not on duty. And I remember asking one time, hey, sir, I, I have to go to this meeting. It's at the division headquarters. He says, you don't need to go to that meeting. Your job is to be in this in this professional military education session and, and you can send one of your people. And so that, that little, you know, that experience just cemented like, okay, priorities, know the priorities, allocate time to the priorities. And also, Hey, trust your people, you, you know, as a leader. And at the time I was a junior leader, but I had other Marines that were, you know, serving with me that were also leaders and, and they're capable of handling responsibilities so that you as a leader can go do, other things as well. So, splitting that, you know, you as a leader don't always have to do everything. You can delegate those things. And and as a young officer, that, that made an impression, but he was such a phenomenal teacher and he taught in a lot of different ways. It wasn't just, you know, going to class and having these conversations where he would talk and, you know, use history as a baseline to almost like case study approach to learning mm-hmm. war fighting. And, but there were, he had so many other avenues to teach as an example you might be in the field and he would just come up to you in the field and he would present a scenario here's a tactical scenario here's the threat here's the adversary you're you know here's some other factors in the situation and then he would just ask you so how would you handle that situation or or what would you do in that situation or what decisions would you make and why would you make those decisions so it was this very uh so, wow kind of socratic interchange and it was all random it wasn't you you would never expect it if he just happened to show up <laughs> right he, he would just hey how you doing and then he would so it was another avenue to teaching and he did that with everybody it was phenomenal and i just remember thinking wow if if we ever had to go to war with that unit and with him as a leader right. i i had no doubt in my heart and in my brain like we knew how he thought and we knew how he wanted us to assess situations we knew what we called his commander's intent for what he wanted to accomplish what the purpose was yeah
0: education like is so important we did that in the submarine force too and it's, right. it's all this situational awareness and there were some times when the captain walked up like you wanted to walk somewhere else Right <laughs> when the captain walked up, he's like, "Can someone relieve me to go to the bathroom?" Because you get this like barrage of, "Okay, we're currently here. What if and, and etc."
1: Yeah, you're on the hot seat. You know, he's putting you on the hot seat to force you to think and and you know how are you going to answer those questions? But it's it's all part of the preparation, and that's really that's just such a huge part of I think being a military leader.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's just great because I love what you said there. If if there were you know, a conflict that happened, that there was personal readiness and collective readiness, and there was no doubt about how you would act, even in the person's absence. And as leaders, sometimes we want to instill that immediately in our teams without doing the work that we need to do every single week. And, you know, it's it's a great testament that consistency in doing that is what Really drives it. the The conversations that you had, one off every single week, alone weren't probably really powerful. It's the collective of all of them, right? Probably that that really got that readiness.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were there were certain Mondays. You're like, okay, here we go again. You know, and it's <laughs> kind of in the grind. But you know, it's it's the law of accumulation. You know, you just keep accumulating experiences, and and then there's some kind of exponential or compound effect to that.
0: All right. Talk to us about your next duty station.
1: When I left 1st Light Armored and Reconnaissance Battalion, I didn't deploy when I was in that organization. So I was really interested in you know going somewhere else in the Marine Corps. I had such a positive first experience. So I, I stuck around and I got an opportunity to serve with the 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit in Okinawa. And that was a A sea-based organization, so we our mission was to float around the Pacific on on Navy ships and amphibious readiness group, and it was just a phenomenal experience of operationally being with a with a unit that was had a distinct mission to be present and always ready to respond to any type of crisis. So, again, just another phenomenal organization to an opportunity to experience. A different part of the Marine Corps, you know, working with the Navy, being aboard ship, sailing around, working with, you know, partner nation militaries, kind of seeing the world, so to speak. Uh, It was just a great, a great learning opportunity, great exposure to a lot of things I hadn't been exposed to before. So.
0: Yeah, I think awesome. I think the other day when we we just had a brief conversation you said, "Hey, that's what I signed up for."
1: Yeah, it was it was sort of the, all those all those characteristics of that experience were sort of the stereotypical, you know, essence of you know, I think what a lot of people think about when they think about joining the Marine Corps or the Navy.
0: Great. So finish that and then take
1: us through to your next duty station. And from there, again, I got another great opportunity that's when I went to the University of California Berkeley to Serve as the Marine Officer Instructor at at the Navy ROTC unit at Cal, and I did that for three years. So it was a leadership opportunity I had. We had a, a little over a hundred Navy midshipmen in that program, and I got the opportunity to to serve as a a leadership mentor to them as they ran their their military training activities. And then I served as an academic advisor and and taught a little bit of military history as part of that program. So. The other thing I worked for a guy there who was a Navy captain and he had come from the Naval Academy and I think one of his big contributions and an impact that he had on me uh, but but essentially all the midshipmen is he was instrumental in in the Na- the Naval Academy's ethics program and so he brought a lot of that thinking and orientation and helped facilitate that into the curriculum and that That was also a big impact on me because I hadn't had like it was it was a little bit of reminiscent of of taking different philosophy classes at Gonzaga, but there was that component to developing leadership philosophy, leadership style, truly understanding and when we talk about integrity, what does that mean so not only was he influential with with the midshipmen there, but certainly for me it was influential with the staff that was. You know, training the midshipmen. We took a lot of that on board. So I would say that was a that was one of the key impact experiences of that of that assignment.
0: Yeah, great. All right, so you finish up there, and where's the next stop?
1: From there, I went to the Amphibious Warfare School in Quantico, Virginia, and it's we call it a career course for sort of mid grade officers, just to advance your technical knowledge and, and proficiency in war fighting and military planning. So a great experience from there and then I came back to California in Camp Pendleton I served at the Marine Corps base Camp Pendleton after that tour and I think 2 or 3 months after I checked back into Camp Pendleton for that follow on assignment after school that's when 911 happened. And so it was almost an overnight shift into okay we we know something's going to happen. We we know there's going to be some kind of response from the United States that'll be That'll incorporate a military aspect to the response. So literally overnight, it was just this major turn and sort of perspective on what are we doing? A lot of activity picked up. Um, so it was kind of an interesting time to be there. You know, there was a lot of work to get 1st Marine Expeditionary Force deployed. And so I was involved in a lot of the preparations and how the base supported that. We incorporated a lot of reservists coming on the base. It was kind of an interesting time to be a a logistics officer then. And not too long after that, then I joined the uh, 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit, and that's where I ended up deploying from to Iraq twice during 2003, and then again in 2004, 2005.
0: So talk about some of the missions that you had when you first went over. I think you shared with me the other day, some of them were like all these little bizarre missions that you were doing.
1: Yeah, I, sometimes I tell people, uh, you know, or I'll tell Marines because there, there seems to be almost a sort of a standard Marine Corps experience. The Marine Corps was in this part of Iraq, and, and, and most Marines were stationed in that part of Iraq. Uh, but the first time I went over there for, you know, the invasion of Iraq with the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit, we were just a small staff of maybe 100 people. And uh, so we were at headquarters, and we didn't have a clear mission. And when we got over there, we were assigned a variety of different missions that were seemingly changing every other week. And you know, this we were a staff, so we were we were trained and accustomed to planning and adapting for a, a wide variety of missions. I think that was one of the strengths of our organization. So, wow. All
0: right, let's go to. Next
1: duty station. where are we next? After the eleventh Mew, I transferred to the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego. I was there for three years, um, served in a headquarters battalion as an operations officer and as an executive officer. And that was a great place to be. It's just uh, such a historical venue. again, it's it represents sort of this essence of the Marine Corps, very you know, spit and polish, squared away, sharp looking marines physically fit. You know, that's where we make Marines, which is one of the, you know, as General Krulak coined uh, during his commandancy, and we, we make Marines. That's one of the principal missions of the Marine Corps, and that's where it happens, you know, at at Paris Island on the East Coast and at, uh, in San Diego on the West Coast. So, it was just a great environment to be a Marine in. And then from there, I went to Korea, and I served as the uh, senior logistics officer for Marine Forces Korea in Seoul. I was there for a year. And, and that was that was interesting just to be in in the Far East and and work with the Koreans and understand their challenges and, and be in that part of the world with, you know, the unique circumstances of of Korea and, and the situation there with with North Korea. And then from there, I came back to Camp Pendleton. Was very fortunate to be selected to command a battalion, Combat Logistics Battalion Five. And I remember when I checked into the unit, you know, there was a lot of thought about, okay, we need to be prepared to go to Iraq. We were, you know, the U.S. was still involved with a true presence in Iraq. But then shortly thereafter, President Obama made the decision that, hey, we're going to surge forces into Afghanistan. And we were a unit that was designated to deploy to Afghanistan in 2010. So really that last half of 2009, about six months, it was all about just training and Hmm. preparing to Go to Afghanistan and, and build a unit based on the mission we were going to be given. So phenomenal experience, phenomenal privilege on so many levels. How many people? I want to say that, uh, sort of the base organization was a little over three hundred, but we nearly doubled in size, probably more than doubled in size, over to you know a little bit, a little bit more than seven hundred because of the mission that we were going to be assigned supporting. Logistically, you know, a number of units in, a, in, a, in the southern portion of Helmand province out in, uh, in the western region of Afghanistan. Let's dive into that a little bit.
0: So in six months, you go from 300 people to doubling, and you have others coming from all different areas, different cultures of the Marine Corps, reservists, and you're trying to assimilate them in. You know, one of the famous business scenes is you can only grow as fast as you have great people. You doubled in size in, in six months and then you weren't doubling the manufacturing output of the, of the plant. You're going to a place where people could potentially die. So what are some of the things that you did to facilitate that and help that melding come together?
1: i remember thinking you know re- really pay attention to your leaders and you know be be in situations put them in situations see how they're going to react assess personality assess strengths ex- assess capabilities and then you're making decisions and you're you're doing it collaboratively because a lot of times you know you as the maybe the senior leader you, you're only seeing people in in limited in limited ways or or narrow ways so i was always looking for you know what other people thought and i remember having we had to make one personnel decision one of my best staff non commissioned officers because he was so good he would he would fall in that category of great he was a great marine and because of that he was highly sought after and but we had some challenges with other leaders and always had, you know, in the Marine Corps, you have an officer and you have a staff non commissioned officer, and, the, and they form a leadership team of an organization of any size. That's just sort of the, the model. And this great Marine was well sought after, and so it was a little bit of a there, there was a there was a heated debate about moving him around because we moved him from one team to another team that was going to disrupt the team that he left. But you're making those decisions. Based on okay, what what do we you know what's the significance of the mission? What's his role? How do we fit? I need to he he's great, and I and I have a weaker leader, and I need to pair him with the weaker leader because the weaker leader's already got the organization. I, I wasn't going to remove that leader. That leader was going to remain in there in their position. But how do I shore that leader up? How do I how do I partner that leader so I can enable them to be effective? enable them to be successful. And then if you have a gap now, okay, we have to mitigate that. How, how do we do that? So there were that was just one anecdote of, of so many of those kinds of leadership decisions. But I was very focused on get get the leadership pairings right because that's who's going to affect you know that team. And um, you, you need to set them up for success. You need to enable them. And a lot of that's training, a lot of that's mentorship. But I was really adamant about, you know, getting that right. So we spent an inordinate amount of time on that. My executive officer, my senior enlisted advisor, the sergeant major, we, we focused on that. I just remember that was like a dominant, almost daily right. uh, daily thing we, we talked about and, and assessed whenever we were training. And we made a lot of moves. You know, we were constantly shifting. Even in, even in Afghanistan, as things evolved, you know, I had to look at potentially relieving somebody and, and firing them for performance. So we had a lot of a lot of discussion about okay, what's the risk if we do that? We're in you know highly volatile position, and what are the third and fourth order effects of that? When when's the timing? When do we do it? So those were just dominant topics all the time. Yeah, it's great.
0: All right, next stop for you
1: is so after Afghanistan, I. Went to the U.S. Army War College for a year in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, a joint school. So went went to school with officers from all the other U.S. services and a lot of officers from uh, partner nations of the United States. So interesting. And then I went down to U.S. Special Operations Command for what we call a joint tour. So U.S. Special Operations Command is the command over all of the U.S. Special Operations Forces from all the services. And so it's a joint command. So you have people serving there from all the other services. So, and that was just that was a phenomenal uh, experience, um, particularly because my first two years there, I believe, it was Admiral McRaven was the the commander, and I didn't have any experience with special operations. So, just being exposed to that was interesting. But was what really st- what really impacted me was kind of watching. How Admiral McRaven pursued some strategic initiatives and how he was able to manage a very, you know, a, a headquarters staff to not only continue executing, you know, sort of the current mission focus, but also then how to, you know, use use some of his staff and how he, he kind of organized people and, and built some other teams to to start actually getting traction on on sort of future initiatives, so that that ex- watching how that unfolded, um, I wasn't really in the middle of that, but watching from afar was was a really interesting experience. And you know how how do senior leaders kind of start to shift the direction of the organization? What
0: did you learn from being around the Cravens?
1: From a personality standpoint, he, he was, I, I believe he was the commander of the Joint Special Operations Command when when the United States was able to take down Osama bin Laden. So he, he had this reputation, you know, that was, that was part of his record. Uh, but he was such a humble guy, very confident, you know, Navy SEAL, very confident, but very humble, very personable leadership style. And so I always found when I was in meetings, you know, he's very engaging. He had a presence, but it was just a very down-to-earth, you know, humble presence for a guy that, you know, very senior leader. And so he had a lot of authority had a lot of power, high-profile role. But just how he handled that, I thought it was just kind of a phenomenal mix of, like, personal attributes and professional attributes. That's awesome. All right. That was fantastic. Take us on the next step of your journey. When I left Special Operations Command, I was fortunate to uh, be selected to command uh, at Camp Pendleton again, this time a larger organization, another logistics organization. About 2,300 people had four, what I would call like subordinate business units or four subordinate elements, each each with their own senior leaders so I did that for two years, and and again, it was a logistics unit. So principal mission was to logistically support First Marine Division at Camp Pendleton, um, and then the other the other facet we were still sending forces to Kuwait and Iraq for you know countering the ISIS threat in in Syria and in places like that. So. We, we had another training resourcing mission of, of making sure that, you know, we were contributing ready forces to go and do those missions as, as directed. So I did that for two years. And then from there, I went on, kind of moved up to the larger logistics organization at Camp Pendleton, the first Marine logistics group, which is about 8,000 Marines and sailors and served as the chief of staff there, which is Kind of like the second in command to the, to the senior leader, but really having a principal focus on coordinating the staff that enables the senior leader to make decisions and also coordinating the staff that supported all of the subordinate units with um, various support, personnel support, supply support, operational support you know kind of organizing the, the the larger organization to to meet its commitments. so it was, a, it was a, a different type of a leadership role, not as not as directive, much more a facilitator to other leaders who had staff functions. so it was an interesting shift in you know leadership uh, roles, leadership responsibilities and, and required a leadership style change. what what was that for you? What was the style change for you? You know, I've always tried to be, I think facilitator is such a great, you know, alternative word for leadership. I mean, you're really trying to facilitate other teams, whether it's through people, resources, training opportunities. Um, I think sometimes when you have direct responsibility for what an organization does or fails to do, you know, you've got to be a lot more directive. Hey, this is, and that just seems to be a little bit more of the, maybe a larger part of of the leadership, not approach, but the leadership requirement in that kind of a role. Whereas, you know, when I was the chief of staff, I found it to be far more collaborative and f- the emphasis was more on facilitating. Hey, what what do you need in terms of being the senior communications officer or the senior personnel people officer, either to pull a policy together, get people to comply, and then you're trying to cohese that or integrate that staff of these disparate functions to go, okay, what what does the senior leader need to know to make informed decisions? How do we help inform the senior decision or the, the senior leader? And then once decisions are made, you know, our job as a staff is to implement the decisions. You know, you, you write policies, you write plans. And so, you're you're constantly having to integrate and facilitate you know, between decisions and execution, so a little bit, a little bit of a different role. But I, I think it, I think the big shift for me was, hey, it's really about facilitation here. How, how can I help these different uh, functional entities do what they need to do?
0: All right, next stop on the journey.
1: So the Marine Corps journey ends. My last stop was with Third Marine Aircraft Wing at Miramar, and I was what we call the G4 so the director of logistics for the ground side of operations of the aircraft wing so obviously in the aircraft wing it's it's about the aircraft and there's support of the aircraft in that part of the mission if you were to look at your entire career
0: what are the biggest things you've learned
1: about being a leader the the learning and leadership development never stops it's not like there's a set hey this is how you do it it's constant learning constant evolution you know so whether you call it being a student of leadership you're just constantly evolving and it's it's just a n- non-stop continuous developmental process and you and you do it different ways at different times so a lot of times it's watching other leaders it's getting outside your world. So, in my case, the military world, and, and we don't have a monopoly on great leadership. There's other great leaders in other realms of of the world. So, looking outside your realm and looking at other realms and what can you take, that's part of the learning. You got to be a, I believe you have to be a voracious reader. I mean, General Mattis talked about, and I can't recall the exact quote, but it's something along the lines like, if you haven't read, you know, a thousand books, then, you're like illiterate. You know, if you want a 2,500-year-old mind, you can get that. You just have to read a lot of books. You have to listen to a lot of other leaders talk about leadership. And that all, just like you said, it just kind of accumulates over time. And I think it just goes into some brew. So, you know, leadership is, leadership development is nonstop learning.
0: For a person who has a new leadership team or has some people in a new position in leadership, what do you think is the best way for a leader to teach leadership?
1: I've wrestled with that and experimented with that, you know, throughout my entire career, you kind of watch other effective leaders and and how they impart that examples. Setting the example is immense and it, it may be the most potent, um, because people are always watching, you don't know what they're watching for, but they're always watching. You know, body language, tone of voice, what type of decisions? How do you how do you make the decision? How do you run a meeting? How do you communicate in oral form, written form? And so you're always being watched. Uh, so I think the example is really really powerful and. You know, I think there's an emphasis, you know, maybe in the commercial world, you know, from what I've seen and read, like, there, there seems to be, like, we got to have a formal leadership development program.
0: Oh, that's great. We always share with leaders, and we ask them a question when we start working with them. What day of the week are people most watching you in your leadership role? Typically, we get answers back, Was oh, is it Monday? Maybe it's Friday. Right. <laughs> and the answer is every day of the week. Right. So when you're at work, they're watching you. On Friday night, if you run, run into them, into, uh, out at a bar or you're at a, a restaurant, if you're at a movie theater on Saturday together, you're being watched all the time. Yeah, 24-7. 24-7. When you think about your love of broadcasting, How do you think that helped you in the Marine Corps?
1: And what I've learned over time is like that the communication aspect in leadership is really interpersonal, but certainly, you know, observation, skills, observing. So watching a game and then describing that and trying to do that in a entertaining way, trying to do it in a concise way. I, I think those are helpful attributes for a leader. And certainly there are helpful attributes when you serve other leaders. So if you're an advisor to a leader, you run a department and you have to advise a senior executive, you know, your ability to convey what you've observed, articulate those perspectives. I think that comes from, you know, the broadcasting, you know, that you do a fair amount of writing. And, you know, we learned, I used to hammer this with uh, the younger officers, you know, the the one of the most critical skills I think leaders have and maybe it's changed in the modern era, but it's the ability to write well. There's a great book I read recently called Brevity, mm. and it just talks about you know how do you, how do leaders, how can leaders improve their communications? Whether it's speaking, writing an email, putting out a newsletter, it's an awesome book. But it really emphasizes that writing is such a big part of communication. Whether you're texting, social media post, how to do that effectively, and it's far more complicated now. So the writing part of broadcasting, I did a lot of writing. I think that helped.
0: I love what you said about being able to analyze. Maybe there's a play that happened. Right. And it's happening at speed. Yeah. Then you got to summarize it. And then you got to communicate it simply to someone who's listening on a radio.
1: Right, right. How do you describe that? You know, How do you bring that to life? Um, I was kind of always fascinated with that. Like one of my favorite announcers was a guy named Bill King. He used to call the Raider games in the golden state warrior games and he was he just had a phenomenal way of using language and and painting a picture that i just never really encountered with anybody any other sportscaster so i always tried to emulate him
0: yeah i have this vision of you
1: know in iraq you're you're making the call (laughs) and then he's
0: coming around the left hand
1: (laughs) well you know it's funny you, you bring that up so i would spend you know back to communication i would spend a lot of time like in the combat operations center and i i think my team started to recognize this because i would be very demanding of using precise language to describe things okay well you said they who's they was that a higher headquarters was it another commander you can't just use they you know but and and you're you're teaching to that all the time because And even in my current role, I'm doing that. I'm like, we we are conveying information to senior leaders. They want this information for awareness and to make decisions. It has to be precise. It has to be concise. And you're coaching to that all the time. Yeah, that's great.
0: So share with us a failure that you had and how it changed you as a leader.
1: You know, a lot of failures on on so many levels. I, there's there's an anecdote, and it's it's has stayed with me my entire career. Uh, I don't think I got a real. I think I failed in making a critical personnel move, and I counted as a failure because I don't think I served the Marines well with the with the decision. So I I had a an officer that I was. Intensely debating internally in my head and with other, was on the leadership team. Like, hey, I think we need to relieve this guy, and here's why. But there were factors that also argued against that, and so ultimately, for a variety of reasons, I decided not to relieve that person, and and I regret that, and I think it was a bad decision, a poor decision, because the Marines deserved better. They deserved a better leader. What did you learn from it? You know I, I learned that you gotta have clear priorities about you know w- what's what's the most important thing, so, in that case, you know there was like tactical competency which was there, but does that outweigh you know the culture uh, that's created by the leader?
0: What's a leadership skill that you used in the Marine Corps day in and day out that you feel
1: always made a difference I, I don't know if it was a skill as maybe maybe as much of it well maybe it's a skill but also an attribute I don't know if I would call it a skill I strove to always be collaborative. I wasn't the smartest guy in the room didn't want to be the smartest guy in the room so you, you try to remind yourself like hey there's a smart there's a lot of smart people nobody's got a monopoly on a good idea and so you' you're trying to look around like who, who's got an idea? who can contribute to this discussion, who can inform the decision. And so I, I strove to always be as collaborative as the situation allowed for, you know, empathy gets gets a lot of coverage now. I, I think, I don't know if it's a skill or an attribute. I, I think you can cultivate it either way and just becoming more mindful of that as I got more senior. I think when you get older and more experienced, and, and you focus on that, maybe you cultivate that a little bit more. Um, but you also have to remember, you know, you can be empathic up to a point, but at certain times, you're like, okay, well, can't solve every every problem. You know, we we can understand, but you got you got to get to a point of decision. So balancing that. So again, whether it's a skill or an attribute, I I became more mindful of the significance of that as I as I got older and more more senior
0: so what's one thing that someone could do who's listening right now what's one thing that they could do to surface the leader within them
1: within themselves yeah read and reflect you know you're always learning you're always refining your philosophy your style your approach so continuing to whether you're listening to a podcast you're reading a book you're talking to, you know, going to uh, a professional, you know, gathering. You're you're picking up stuff. You're thinking about leadership. So you got to reflect on it.
0: R&R. Love it. So currently, tell us about the um, challenge that you have right now and the new opportunity. And tell us how it's going.
1: Yeah. A great challenge at Raymond West, which is in the material handling business. And, you know, I'm on a team right now that is supporting hoarding, Amazon. So a very professional client with, you know, high expectations and that moves at, you know, speed of light. It's so difficult to keep up with. And, you know, Raymond West took on this business and a significant challenge for them to kind of organize themselves and scale to meet to meet the demand both in terms of volume of work and you know speed of execution and the and being able to manage the complexity of the work uh so you know I'm I'm in the middle of you know trying to help improve you know the organizational structure and and the processes to you know meet meet those to meet those demands you know we we've got to be efficient we've got to be fast we've got to be responsive we've got to be super competent
0: So Heidi just ordered a dog bowl yesterday. (laughs) So, Jeff, if it doesn't come, I'm gonna blame (laughs) it on I'm gonna blame it on you. Okay.
1: I would expect it there to be be there on your porch when you get home tonight. That's what I'm understanding is the customer promise of Amazon.
0: (laughs) On a on a serious note, I know you've only been there 30 days, but how do you think all of your experiences in the military are gonna translate to help you be successful at your new opportunity.
1: I think the experiences of, of building a team are, are going to be you know critical. L- looking at who you have on the team, assessing skill, strengths. Hey, do you want to do this job? Like we, we have a gal right now and she's super competent and, and she got thrust into a role that she probably... Maybe doesn't necessarily prefer in comparison to another role, but she's doing a job. So again, it's assessing, hey, who, who do we have? W- what's the mission require? How do we go about getting the right people in the right position so that we can optimize their, their strengths? The challenge here is, you know, like in the Marine Corps, you, you have time to kind of work up and prepare because you know, hey, we're on the schedule. We've got six months, seven months, whatever it is. Here, you're just thrust into the middle of the operation and you're you're working in the business trying to solve the day's problem. And and then you're trying to back to that point, Hey, how do we carve out time to kind of pursue some of these strategic changes that kind of reorient us so that we can, we can continue to grow. We can continue to sustain. And so I, I think just dealing with those, I think the military prepares you to deal with challenges like that. And so I'm constantly using, you know, previous mental models, which is dangerous to some extent, because I think, uh, you know, I just read an article. One of my mentors gave me uh, before I started the role, and, and you know, one of the takeaways was, you know, leaders that go into a new situation will just almost subconsciously default to their previous experiences, and they're looking for that mental model, like, "Hey, how did I solve a similar type thing?" But the challenge is, okay, can you get out of that and, and take a, a totally unique perspective that's not anchored to your past? Because maybe if you're looking through. A past lens you you might you might read this situation wrong and i think that's kind of a tough you know psychic thing to to do
0: that was gold
1: what you just said because that's
0: what, how humans are built we're built yeah, to recognize exactly. patterns
1: yeah. and i find myself doing it all the time like oh i've you know what's in my past experience and then when i reread the article i was like yeah i gotta be cognizant of Maybe you it just it's okay to just say, I don't know. I don't have, I don't have a mental model for that. How are we gonna approach it? Yeah. So I thought what
0: was interesting was how we were connected and and the story of that, that you know, Vince connected us as you're making the transition. We're running fast attack leadership boot camp. You and I have an initial conversation. Yeah. I share with you the journey that I had making the transition right. and how it's really helped me and and how all those skills are transferable. You decide, hey, I'm going to come to the boot camp, Yeah, right? You're at the boot camp. It's fantastic having you there. My wife Heidi is there. And then what happens? You're in your mind going like, I know these people from somewhere, <laughs> right? right? And so take the rest of the story here.
1: Yeah, I remember... I remember seeing Heidi there and thinking, I've seen her somewhere. And then I don't know how many minutes it took me to rack my brain to figure out, okay, where, where. And then, you know, I recollected, oh, those are the people that sit in front of me at church. <laughs> Two rows. <laughs> That's where I've seen that guy before.
0: <laughs> I guess we have. And I think been- it
1: took me a half a day to figure that out. And I was probably thinking on it pretty hard.
0: I yeah we have been great Christians to turn around and at least say hi to you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you did. I just couldn't put okay different contexts. I see the same people in a different right. contexts. You know, so it's you know bizarre how the brain works like that.
0: Yeah, that was that was unbelievable. Yeah. And that we were brought together yeah. has just been has been fantastic. It's yeah. it's uh, been such a pleasure getting to know you. I want to you know thank you for your service, Bernadette's service also. One of the other things a listener should know is that Jeff and and Bernadette they get it done right. So they were pregnant once and they had three, they had triplets. <laughs> so what usually takes people twenty nine months to do, they got it done in nine. So, but you know Bernadette's uh, service and and your kids' service also as you're serving our great country is 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 very much appreciated. So I want to thank you for spending all this time with us today. It's been fantastic. The listeners are going to get a lot out
1: of us. And thank you, Jeff. Well, I really appreciate that, Mark. And it's been a great pleasure getting to know you. And I I really value your experience and the mentorship you've given me having gone that military transition journey. And that's that's a great model for me. So I appreciate that. It's been an awesome experience kind of watching you present at boot camp, and I could relate to everything you presented. It just resonated and I could see the effects and the value that you provide to those companies. So yeah, I am uh, really enjoyed the conversation. I enjoy every, all of our conversations. Uh, they could go on forever. You got such a broad range of interests. And so thanks for having me on and uh, yeah, look forward to continuing the conversation down the road.
0: Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.